Hey ho, Tudor minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 56 of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're getting towards the fabulous ending. And if this is your first time here, you probably want to go back and start at episode, episode one. This is a story project and it goes in order and we don't want you to miss any of our tale. And we're so fortunate to have listeners from all over the world. It's incredibly exciting for us. And we're really happy to be sharing this podcast with all of you. And if you're enjoying it, support us by buying some Tudor Time Machine swag. Yes, go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the shop now button and get a Do You Tudor Tea or a Tudor Time Machine logo sweatshirt ready for the fall. It's a come in and support the podcast at the same time. And in our last episode, Blackjack let Constance go from Gravesend. But now we're meeting up with Constance and Charles further along the journey to Dover. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 56, The Cliffs of Dover, in which there is an end of England and of all modesty. Constance's back ached as her horse jogged along the uneven pavement. She was much more comfortable astride her own mount, with Charles several feet away. Yet the improvements were for nothing. She felt like death. In the few night hours at the inn at Canterbury, she had doubled over in sweaty cramping, her half-sleep troubled by the scene with Blackjack, rolling through her again and again. How could she be sad to take leave of a man who had never liked her in the least, who had suspected her the moment he heard her name? Yet, when he prayed to never see her again, it wounded. He had let her go. Blackjack was an odd creature. What a turn of fate that Charles had gone to the village for supplies. If he had been at the stables, Blackjack would have loosed his temper. She, Charles, and the faithful tower would all be dead now, their heads on pikes. Heaven and hell she ached. And Charles... He had had the gall to invade her little sack and take out the Toddles' miscellany. It pierced her heart when she saw it hit the mud, to live without those verses. Philomena had given that to her, and Wyatt's words. Charles rode before her, his head bowed in prayer yet again. At least he did not sermonize. What a mercy. She begged a moment's leave and dismounted, struggling into the bushes, pulling at her breeches. There! a patch of bright red blood. But how to manage? Feeling around in the underbrush, she found nothing. She scrabbled about, hiding herself until the thought of her boy's kerchief struck her. It might work. She laid it out and filled it with leaves that she folded into a pouch and tied around herself like a loincloth. I see the harbour, dear heart, Charles called. It is just over this crest. Emerging from the bushes, Constance saw Charles and the tower standing atop a ridge. She wrenched her clothes around and strode up the hill. The leaves in her breeches shifted and crackled as she hoisted herself up into the saddle. From this bird's-eye view she beheld the sea for the first time, the great ocean. It filled her gaze and crashed so hard on the shore she feared it would lap at her feet, even so far away as she was. The sound clapped her ears. A ship on its side lay like the bones of a decapitated sea-monster. Sailors yelled and shopkeepers shouted. The sea thrashed, and the air stank and was sticky. The many miles she had traveled, only to arrive at this horrid place, filled with a disharmony of blood-curdling sounds. 
She had imagined one glorious and huge ship waiting for her in the harbour, with a serene seawall that she would prance along before alighting on the deck. Here were fifty ships in a hodgepodge, rocking and careening on restless swells. There, at the water's edge, travellers shook purses aloft at boatmen. They were paying hard-earned coins to get into those wooden tubs at the edge of the water. And the worst of it all, she would do the same. Poor souls! Have you ever beheld the sea before, Charles? Indeed, it is an awesome sight. Do not fear. We are in God's hands. Yet the sea is very large and angry. We shall go around the other side, by the fishermen. Those guards will not allow you to travel without a license, Constance, dear heart. It was a steep incline to the shoreline, and the horse's head was well below her. Constance disliked riding down hills. The cliffs rose to her left, white rising from the murky sea. White. She had never imagined white, sheer cliffs. Like ice. Unnatural. The hills of Stoner were beautiful, green and soft, and the air... This seaport was the stuff of nightmares. And Spain! How outlandish to think on it! Dry and barren. Constance longed for Stoner House and venison. On this sea journey, what would she eat? Kraken and seaweed. The kraken could well devour her. Her life ripped from her by the tentacles of a terrible beast. She gave a coin to a beggar. Constance looked closer. There, coming out of a low building, a familiar figure. Doradai? It was she, clutching at her trunk while some burly merchant gripped the other side. The nasty Royster had no business trying to claim it. Even at the edge of departure, creditors were on the heels of the Swedish. Brigitte burst out waving papers at an ox-sized fellow in some kind of livery. The Christinas bounded by, their arms full of clothes and furs. Brigitte flagged her fellows. Two small boats floated members of the household toward a masted ship, hoisting the Vasa colors. They were leaving, even now. They were leaving, even now, to Sweden, with Princess Cecilia, and not with Charles to be a nun, not to the illustrious brotherhood of the True Cross, but to the Vasa court of Sweden, with festivities, dancing, courtiers, and girls who liked poetry. Charles? I hear my darling speak. Charles? I am not worthy to be a nun. You must go to Spain without me. Dear child, you are made nervous by the sea. I cannot give my life to God alone. That is my shortcoming, not yours. And there is no sin that shall stick to you, Charles. What earnest effort you have made. I am unworthy. You have always believed me better than I am. You do not know your own goodness. You shall come with me and find the truth of yourself. What consideration filled his face. How he held on to his utterly wrong belief. Her mind reeled for words to shut his mind to this doting. The truth. The bald truth. Charles, I am not a virgin. His little smirk filled her with bile. It is so, Charles. I am no maid. It is worthy that you doubt yourself, but you need not lie. I am tainted. It is my duty to take you, dearest. And take you I shall. The nuns will clear your mind. He was so relaxed there on his horse. He did not believe her. He believed his own version of her. What a toady brain. Charles, I lay with a man, in a bed, to be known in the carnal way. I cannot be a nun. You and I must part. Go our separate ways. He stretched both arms out to her. 
Dismount your horse, child, and let me embrace you. You fear the voyage. She glanced to the Vasa flag. He had to release her. Did he not hear her words? I have seen a cock, she announced. He dropped his arms. You have not. It was curved and like a sausage with an opening at one end, and there were hairy gizzards at the bottom. He sucked in his breath. I touched it with this hand, Charles. He winced away as she stretched the offending hand out to him. Charles writhed painfully. You are pure, Constance. You have not betrayed all. I have, Charles. I held the cock. I did, and it was warm and stiff, and it had spit on the end of it. You are a fallen Eve. You are a sin in angel form. His face contorted, and tears spurted from his clenched eyes. Her heart went out to him, but she must finish the task. The cock slid right between my legs, like a snake into its hole. You must repent. Get off your horse. No, I cannot wait to be ridden again myself. You repulse me, but I shall forgive you. I care not for forgiveness, Charles. I will find another Spaniard who shall have me again and again. His mouth twisted, and a look of utter dejection came over him. How I loved you, and yet you are an ordinary serpent-bearing harlot. Repent. I cannot, Charles. Constance Donna, repent. Repent as Mary Magdalene did to our Lord, or I shall leave you. I shall not repent. I cannot take on your sin. It is too great. It is too great, Charles. I abandon you here at this port to the judgment of God. Prostrate yourself, bend to his will, plead for his mercy, or embrace Satan and burn forever in the fiery pit as the whore you are. I leave it to you. Charles spun his horse around, galloped away, his footman running beside him as he waved his arms to the skies and called on God to strike her down. God had not struck her down yet, Constance thought. All things considered, Charles's disappointment was an unlikely cause to induce the Lord to finally act. I must get to that ship, Constance announced to the tower, dismounting and pointing to the Vasa colors. Yes, my lady. The tower tied the horses to the beam of a ruined boat. Constance followed him, running to the shore with the tower holding her sack. Constance hung back as he argued with a fisherman, pointing to a vessel smaller than some of the wherries on the Thames, the size of a coffin, Pitikins. The tower marched back to her. I shall row, lady. Have you rowed on the sea, tower? Lady, I have not. The tower pulled the craft far onto the land, so there would be no danger of Constance getting her feet wet, and he gave her a hand for balance. Set out into the water, Constance bobbed on the white-capped waves among the rowboats filled with screaming men. These fishermen were a hollering lot. Tower catapulted himself into the vessel, measuring the water and their position. She followed his eye and saw a pair of constables. They must want the boat, or perhaps her travelling papers. Lunging at the oars, arching his back, curving his shoulders, straining. No watermen on the Thames put forth such effort as did the tower. Rough water set Constance gripping the side of the tiny vessel, her knuckles bloodless as a wall of water rose about them. The tower was at the oars, drawing and drawing, but the craft did not move. Would they be trapped in this eddy while Cecilia sailed? Constance could see the tower's mind whirling for an answer. 
It landed, a sailor whose vessel seemed to slide across the turbulent water as if it were glass. He was old, that other sailor. The skin of his arms was pulled and burnt, and his wrists were knobby, but his boat was his sun-chariot skimming atop the eddy. The tower leaned exactly as that old man leaned, and the power of his youthful arms pressed their boat out of the strong current. Shrieks filled Constance's ears. Dorodai and Elizabeth clutched each other in a tender that spun every way, as the boy who had been rowing dangled his oars and wailed. "'Those ladies! Tower, can we help them?' The tower did not answer, so Constance braced herself, shouting, "'Those ladies! Spinning! Can we help them?' The tower changed course, his eyes watching the water. "'Dorodai!' Constance screamed, but Dorodai did not turn. The tower fished a rope from the bottom of the boat, and Constance prayed she would not be asked to throw it. She remembered her failure at throwing rope. The tower did not beg such a feat, and looping the rope he cast. Elizabeth saw it coming, and she stretched out her hands. It must have hit hard. She jerked away, but the boy roused himself and leapt over, grabbing it. "'I can hold our end,' said Constance. The tower assessed her strength. "'Over your head, lady, around your back, hold with your hands, and wedge your legs. If you think you shall go over, lady, scream!' An unnecessary suggestion. Constance was sure she would scream quite naturally if she were about to be tossed into Neptune's boiling depths. Arranging herself, the huge rope behind her, her legs pressed into the front of the boat, the tower rode. The boy rode. The boat, freed from the eddy, came quickly alongside. "'Oh, thanks!' was all Constance could hear, before the boy threw the rope back and pulled away, making swiftly for the Vasa ship. Constance damned her own little coffin vessel. But the tower laid in, and within moments they were riding the wake of Cecilia's ship. Immense, sturdy, a floating fort. Constance longed to board. Another tender had drawn beside, and sailors helped the Swedes up a ladder onto the deck. The small lady must be Birgitta, and the two others the Christinas. Over the side the Vasa retinue waved to their embarking countrymen. "'There, there, in that raft, creditors!' one of the Christinas called, seeing Constance. "'Fire the cannon!' Elizabeth commanded. "'The villain ark needs sinking!' "'Mercy, mercy! I am no creditor!' I swear it, I am Constance Stoner. Who? called Brigitta. Constance Stoner, Constance Stoner. Constance? yelled Dorodai. Is it in her boy clothes? I want to come with you to go to Sweden, shouted Constance, straining up at the row of faces above her. She smiled and waved, playing off her unexpected appearance as a pleasant chance encounter. "'You want to come seaweeding?' called Brigitte, without a hint of comprehension. "'To Sweden, now, with you!' Constance bellowed. It was a striking request. Here she was, chasing them on the water, dressed as a boy, recently a prisoner. They did not have to be Erasmus to know she was escaping. The ladies disappeared from the edge. Constance gave an encouraging look to the tower. How terrible if they had come all this way, and the ladies would not let her up! And what then? They reappeared, hanging their hands down and calling to seamen to help their friend Constance aboard. Warmth, relief, every sort of happiness filled Constance. I give you thanks, 
she said to the tower. My duty is done, lady. And it is most well done. I owe you my very life. The tower looked down at his oars. I have your book, lady. He handed her the Toddles miscellany. This fellow had saved her book from its muddy tomb. That big body held a big soul. Good tower, I shall bless you every day. Constance clambered up the ladder, and two sailors pulled her to the deck. She bent over the side of the boat and tossed the entirety of Rutland's purse into the tower's craft. For once her faulty aim did not miss, and the purse landed at his oversized feet. She turned her head away quickly before he could try to return it to her. The slippery slats beneath her feet sent her sliding into the arms of her new confederates. They swarmed about her. You will find your sea legs. But how sick you will feel first. Do you run from harm? From a lover? To a lover? From the creditor wolf? For all these reasons I am here, Constance said with a bit of a laugh. Doradai supported her with her arms around her waist as Constance struggled to keep herself upright on deck. Shall the princess be happy to have me? she asked uncertainly. Of course, Doradai reassured. I think not, warned Elizabeth. My sister cannot pay her attendance as it is. She will not want another. These ladies needed to survive. Constance could not fault their concerns. Once in Sweden I shall find another household. I do not seek to take anyone's place. I swear to you, I look only for passage. Constance can take Elin's duties, a flower for a snake, argued Dordai. It is not for you to decide, Dordai. It is a matter for the princess, Elizabeth pressed. Peace, Dordai said. The princess will be joyous to see Constance, and she shall think it speaks well of her that she left the service of that penny-pinching Tudor. I shall take you to her, Constance. Constance, first we must dress you, said Christina, Gabriel's daughter. You shall wear the costume of a true Swedish lady. I had a dark red dress that would have set off your white skin just so, but one of those pudgy creditor robbers claimed it. We will find you something. Wait here for us, Constance, Dordai said. When we are ready with the goods, we will come for you. It would draw attention to have a boy in our rooms. Constance was left to eye the coastline. She could still see the coffin boat and the tower making for land. He could ride more quickly without her and would soon arrive in London. Philomena would jump for pure pleasure when she received a letter from Ned, not from a Spanish convent, but from the Vasa court. From here, those white Dover cliffs were not scary, but a majestic cake enticing voyagers to the shore. She would never see this land again, the land of her branded family the land that was their tempestuous lover, hating them one year, loving them the next. She could not leave her England, but she would. There lies beyond the Gaelic bounds, an island which the western sea surrounds, by giants once possessed, now few remain, to bar thy entrance or obstruct thy reign, to reach that happy shore thy sails employ, there fate decrees to raise a second Troy, and found an empire in thy royal line, which time shall never destroy, nor bounds confine. 
Without Rutland, she would never have known so much poetry. And poor Charles, had he boarded his ship, how well he would fare without her. Jesu, she had said some shocking things. Constance really did say some shocking things. She used her words. Yes, she did. It was her only way to get rid of Charles. She couldn't have fought him off. He's twice her size. But size means nothing when you're full of righteous fury. Actually, it really annoys me when it turns out that all women are secretly trained in the martial arts. No, or they would automatically choose violence when you're watching a period drama and suddenly women are able to fight and sword fight. And yeah, of course, there were women who secretly learned to do those things. But for most women, that would have been impossible. Constance isn't going to suddenly decide that she should slug Charles to get away. And if she tried to run away from him, either he would have caught her or someone else would have, some other man would have, and she would have been returned to Charles's custody or to the custody of some other man. That was just the reality. No one would take her side. Women were not supposed to be going around by themselves. No one would have believed her or cared that she wanted to get away from him. But Charles can choose. And he chooses to ride off alone into the sunset, cursing, cursing Constance as he goes. And into the sunset of Roman Catholic conspiracies. Because we know for a fact that the real Sir Charles Paget went on to become a genuinely dangerous fellow and was very involved in the plots against Queen Elizabeth and her government. Initially, he went into exile in France, but France was in the middle of a war of religion, which was essentially a civil war, and that lasted more than 30 years. So on one side was the Roman Catholic Catherine de' Medici, and the powerful Guise family, and on the Protestant or Huguenot side was the House of Condé and the Bourbons of the Navarre region. So Mary, Queen of Scots' mother, was Mary of Guise, and she came from the house of these very important Catholic nobles. And that's why Queen Mary of Scots was kind of brought up with these very strong French uncles, all these Guise uncles who really were incredibly influential in in her life. During Elizabeth's reign, England and the Dutch Republic supported the Huguenots, and Spain and Savoy supported the Roman Catholics. In 1562, Catherine de' Medici was regent. Her husband, Henry II, died in 1559, and she did try to keep a lid on the bubbling pot. She did establish some religious tolerance with the Edict of Saint-Germain. But the toleration did not go far enough, according to the Huguenots, and it went too far, according to the Catholics. The Guises, who, again, were on the Catholic side, were particularly upset by this edict. And then in 1563, Francis, Duke of Guise, was assassinated by a Huguenot, and that led to more fighting and more death. So in 1571, in an attempt to settle things down, the Protestant Prince of Navarre, Henry de Bourbon, was married to the Catholic Margaret of Valois, who was the daughter of Catherine de Medici and Henry II. Because then as now, everyone loves the royal wedding and they hoped it would just settle everything. But it was absolutely not enough. The Pope and King Philip of Spain spoke out against the marriage and that stirred up many of the Catholic clergy of France, and they all preached against it. So members of the Parliament of France and members of the Catholic royal family refused to attend the wedding. So any show of religious tolerance was completely undermined. So a few days after the ceremony, the French king, Charles IX, 
ordered the assassinations of many of the important Huguenots who had actually come to Paris from the safety of their stronghold in Navarre to attend the wedding. It's so horrible because they came with the best intentions. The thing is, the assassinations, it just, it sort of exploded into a killing frenzy by the Catholic majority of Paris against the Huguenot minority, and thousands of Huguenots were massacred. Which, of course, was fueled by religious differences, But also there were other conditions that made people very upset and angry and distressed because the harvests had been very bad and taxes had risen and people were very upset. As happened, they blamed the members of the opposing religion. Doesn't always have to be religious, but in these kind of things where these kind of terrible events happen, it's usually because there's some underlying conditions that are making people feel desperate, not just the ideology. And numbers differ, but some historians say as many as 30,000 men, women, and children were killed. Oh, it's just terrible. I mean, that's terrible. Imagine what Paris was like that day. Just horrible. And this day has gone down in infamy, and it's known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And of course, as terrible as things were to get to that point, this horrible event just made it even worse. So there was more death and more unrest. Of course it did, because then people wanted to avenge the death of their loved ones, and somebody else wanted to avenge the death of their loved ones, and everybody blamed each other. And these kinds of horrific events kept going on in Europe. And this really makes it easy to understand why Queen Elizabeth kept her marriage options constantly in flux. She was not going to pledge allegiance to any particular group, because even with the best of intentions, trying to keep the peace with a marriage could just go horribly wrong. And she felt like it was better just to keep everyone guessing, keep all her plates in the air, and not commit to any particular side. It's one of those things where we look back at it and we think she had that in mind, but perhaps she just kept entering into these negotiations and then sort of seeing that it wasn't going to solve anything. So she got out of them. But then some people say she never intended to marry. We'll never know what her long-term vision was or whether it was the decisions that she kept making along the way. Elizabeth wasn't an ideologue. She'd created this Anglican church, this middle way where there was some Catholic traditions, there were some Protestant ideas, and the Pope was certainly not the authority in any way. And I think partially because of Elizabeth's longevity, she was able to hold it together. But also, Charles Paget was an instigator, and he would have been happy to die for his Catholic cause. He was an ideologue. He believed in this stuff. And that scares Constance. She's not an ideologue. The St. Bartholomew Day Massacre was exactly the kind of event that our Constance, as much as she loves her religion, as much as she identifies as a Catholic, she doesn't want anything to do with that sort of thing. She has to get away from Charles Paget. She has to leave England or she's going to be dragged into all of it. So from his base in France, the real Charles Paget became involved with Thomas Morgan. And Thomas Morgan's an interesting person because he was an agent and a spy for Mary, Queen of Scots. And eventually, Morgan became one of the major players in the Babington plot to assassinate Queen Elizabeth. After Mary fled Scotland for England in 1568, Paget and Morgan were her main sources for information coming out of France. Sir Charles Paget used his family's influence in England to be a double agent. He was really 
know, work in it. He pretended to work for the English in France, but actually he was also giving information to the French and to King Philip of Spain. So he was playing it all. He secretly came back to England for a short time under the alias Mope to gain information against the English. Mope is a funny alias, perhaps more of a statement of his personality or his mood. But the English were on to him. Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's spy master, wrote, Charles Paget is a most dangerous instrument, and I wish he had never been born. Wow. And Walsingham <laughs> knew some bad players, but Paget stood out to him. The English tried to have him extradited from France, but the French king refused and protected him. And then he went to work for Philip of Spain, and he was on the losing side of the planned Spanish invasion of England. Before the failed armada, Paget wrote to a compatriot, when the day of the invasion happens, the proudest counselor or minister in England will be glad of the favor of a Catholic gentleman. So he was hoping that he would be able to be in England at the time of this armada when the Spanish invaded, and then he could really be important. That's what he was planning for. That was written under the alias Narius. Narius is better than Mope. He must have been very disappointed when the 130 ships the Spanish sent were wrecked or were turned around. Yes, but he must have been very happy when Francis Drake led the counter armada against Spain in 1589, and he also had to turn around and flee. You don't hear much about that defeat, do you? Not in England. Maybe you do in Spain. Maybe they There's... have their own armada portrait with Drake's ships going up in flames. Sort of presented in English history as if the Spanish armada failed, and you know, that was the end on it. King Philip said, I shall never do this again. But of course, that wasn't the case. Even after the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots and the defeat of the Spanish, Paget continues to plot. He's on it. He supports an invasion of England by James VI of Scotland. I think he expected James would overturn the Protestant government and assassinate Queen Elizabeth, a twofer. I don't know historically, but I'm, I don't think James was up for any of that kind of thing. He was just going to wait his turn to become King of England. But Paget clearly was just, he was like turning from one plot to the other, you know, the Armada, Mary, Queen of Scots. Now he's going to turn to James. Charles Paget hated Elizabeth, and he also really hated the Cecils, both the father, Sir William Cecil, and the son, Sir Robert Cecil. Another contemporary wrote about Paget saying, from the first hour that his years permitted him to converse with men, he has been tampering in broils and practices betwixt friend and friend, man and wife, and as his credit and craft increase betwixt prince and prince. Talk about stirring the pot. I'm interested in the, the broils and practices betwixt man and wife. What do you think that's in reference to? Interesting. He liked to break up couples that he didn't I like? So. I don't know. But anyway, apparently Sir Charles Paget came back to England after Elizabeth died, but he must have been very disappointed in James I of England, the James VI of Scotland, because James was certainly no Catholic. No, I think of him as more Protestant than Elizabeth. Me too. I mean, the King James Bible, right? And James was brought up in the Scottish Kirk, founded by our old friend John Knox, who was definitely more Calvinist than Elizabeth, you know, middle way Anglican church. James allowed Paget back into England and even granted him an annuity of 200 pounds a year because Paget had served his mother, Mary Queen of Scots. But Paget was at it, making trouble for so many years. It's crazy. I don't imagine 
that he stop. He must have been very disappointed in James. And there was a lot of Catholic intriguing. And perhaps Paget was involved with that. He never married. And he died in about 1612. I'm sure he didn't give up after James took the throne. Well, maybe he didn't marry because he was pining for our constant. <laughs> or did he think all women unworthy? Had he taken orders? Was he a secret priest? We don't know. The Catholic gunpowder plot was set on blowing up the Houses of Parliament and King James, and it was planned in 1605. So it's possible Paget was involved in that as well. Sure. I mean, it was his kind of enterprise. And he was certainly connected with the Catholic underground in England at that time. Constance chooses the Swedish ladies over any life with Charles. And that is a bold choice because she really has no idea what her future will be. None. Last episode, we were talking about how hard it must have been to say goodbye to people because you never knew if you were going to see them again. It's so hard for us to imagine what it must have been like in the 16th century for a young woman who's never been out of her country, never been, Constance has never even been to Dover. She's never been that far away from home ever. For her to be suddenly faced with the idea of crossing the ocean and going to a country she has zero experience of, it's kind of like us going to the moon. Seeing the ocean for the first time must have been so shocking. Because in the modern world, even if a person has never been to the ocean in person, they have seen an image of it in a photograph or in the movies, on TV. On TikTok, on Instagram, Constance would have seen depictions of the oceans in paintings, maybe. But landscapes and seascapes were not really popular in England and Europe yet. Right, a religious painting or a portrait might show the ocean in the background. I mean, she had a conception of, of what the ocean was like, but it wasn't even in the way that the ocean was shown later on in the history of art. No, not like in the 19th century when J.M.W. Turner literally lashed himself to a mast in a storm to paint the ocean's turmoil. No, there was nothing that realistic. She would also have seen maps, of course, but honestly, many of them would have made a person even more nervous to get in a boat upon the sea. I know there's a gorgeous map from 1540, the Carter Marina, which is one of the first maps made of Nordic countries. And the man who made it was indeed Swedish. It shows all these incredible, gigantic, and huge sea monsters. And in fact, along the coast of Sweden, there is an enormous red snake monster wrapping itself around a ship. A kraken. We look at these maps now, and we consider that these monsters were put there to be entertaining, like artistic license. But they were actually trying to show what they believed lived in the sea. It, there was an idea in, this, in 16th century Europe, and it went all the way back to the Greeks, that for every animal on the earth, there was an equivalent in the sea. So there were sea pigs, sea dogs, sea cats. And sea lions, which is a name that has weirdly survived. <laughs> yeah, that's the only one I can think of, right? We don't say sea elephant. On the Carta Marina, which is really beautiful, we'll post it on the Facebook page so people can see it. But there's this fantastic immense wild boar sea creature and it has these huge tusks and it's like coming out of the water. The whales have heads like wolves with fangs. So historian Chet Van Duzer wrote, to our eyes, almost all of the sea monsters on all of these maps seem quite whimsical. But in fact, a lot of them were taken from what cartographers viewed as scientific, authoritative books. So most of the sea monsters reflect an effort on the part of the cartographer to be accurate in the depiction of what lived in the sea. I think this is really hard for us to imagine, but it's really important to keep in mind that this was what was 
was based on the science of the time. It wasn't imagination. Constance has every reason to imagine that she will see these terrible monsters on her voyage. Yes, because of course, sailors came back from voyages reporting that they had seen these animals. Which doesn't mean they were lying or trying to deceive the people on land. No, not at all. They thought that is what they had really seen. They saw something red in the water and then they filled in the blanks. They created it as a glimpse of the sea monster. We have this incredible ability to create what we want to see, right? And, and we have Bigfoot. We have created all sorts of aliens. and Right, and the Loch Ness Monster. It wasn't until the end of the 17th century that the monsters started to disappear from European maps. Historians say this was because of the Enlightenment ideas of science. And also, technology had made ships safer. So that gave people a sense of mastery over the ocean and the creatures in it. When we're less scared, we see less scary things. Oh, humans. But these Enlightenment ideas, these science and technology, that's in the future for Constance. She's going to have to prepare herself for what she hopes will be an easy trip and a warm reception from Princess Cecilia. Princess Cecilia, you never know how it's going to go. That's right. We'll see in our next episode. We're nearing the end of this tale. We have only four readings left. It's sort of exciting. It's exciting. We'll see what's next on Tudor Time Machine. Next time we're going back to May 1536 to see where Anne Boleyn has landed in the three years since we last saw her. And most of you Tudor files out there know that in May 1536, Anne Boleyn was in the Tower of London as a prisoner awaiting her fate. So tune in next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.